Well, good evening. I'd like to welcome you to our service tonight. hope that you had a good afternoon and looking forward to our service. Please let's bow together for a word of prayer and then we will get started. Father, we're so grateful for this Lord's Day and the opportunity to open up our Bibles to uh, hear from you. And I pray that tonight you would speak to our hearts, help our hearts to be attentive to the word. And I pray that you would stir our hearts. And I pray that as we have opportunity to share testimony and as we hear about work that's going on around the world, you would encourage us through that. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Good evening, everyone. We'll start off this evening's song service. We're going to turn to page 99 in the hymnal or look up on the screen with me. Please stand. Page 99, a shelter in the time of storm. All four verses. Sing it out. Make a joyful noise tonight. just over the page, flip the page, caught a couple of you napping, I think, on that chorus, but all the way my Savior leads me, all three verses. Oh, 
can have a seat, please, while you turn back to page 95. Page 95. This song always gives me a smile on my face. One of these days, I'll tell you why. It goes back a long ways. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. Brother Braxton with our missions report.
For the guests in the audience here and the congregation, be prepared for page 482. All right, let's see what we can do with this song. Okay. kids up here on stage on the platform and have them sing that I'd like to how'd you like to see that on live stream not just hear it okay page 284 some golden daybreak gives me some intrepidation, but not this one. Got this one. Be Thou My Vision. Page 527 is a good one. Pardon? 527, 527. 
succeeded. They snuck that one in on me. I forgot about that. Vinny, please.
Amen. Aren't you glad you came tonight to hear that? I am. Drinian, that was super. <laughs> Actually, that's not even a very good word. That was wonderful. You know, just to get over, I don't think you can ever really truly get over the fact as we ponder the truth that God died for us. When you ponder that truth, an amazing thought. And if only we could get to the point where abhorring, truly despising and hating our own sin. The challenge with sinners is we like to sin. Recognizing all the more importance of Christ and who he is and what he did on our behalf. What an amazing truth that is. Well, tonight we're going to pick up our study in 1 Samuel. I have the privilege of getting a, get us into 1 Samuel, get us started. So we'll be in chapter 1. And while you're opening to Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1, I just wanted to give it some brief little background. We just finished the book of Ruth, which happened during the beginning time period of the time of the Judges. Now, chronologically, we are going in the Bible, we're going right into 1 Samuel, but 1 Samuel is coming right after. If you're going to look at a timeline, you'd have Judges, Ruth towards the beginning of that, but now on the timeline, the, that time of Judges is coming to an end. And 1 Samuel is following that time of the judges and really transitioning from a time of judges and delivering from different nations to a king where the nation of Israel demands to have a king because, well, other nations do and we want one. So 1 Samuel here is going to be kind of a transitional book from what Israel was used to with these judges delivering them and from every man doing that which was right in his own eyes to now having a king to bear that responsibility. And we're going to meet some folks uh, early on here in chapter 1. We're going to meet Eli in chapter 1. He passes away in chapter 4. We're going to run into Samuel, who the book, book is named after in this first chapter. Uh, he's born towards the end of the chapter. But he dies by chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. So we have First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And... Uh, these books used to be 1st Kings, 2nd Kings, 3rd Kings, 4th Kings. And I think, I mean, I don't know why, uh, just in some reading that I did, they just kind of went with Samuel just because he is the one who anointed uh, the first kings of Israel. Uh, there being Saul and then David. And so between those two, it covers 1st and 2nd Samuel. That's a good guess. I really don't care what you call the books. It's the truth that's in it that's more important. But uh, that's the way it is. And then we're introduced by chapter 9. I'm just giving a really brief... Uh, overview of 1 Samuel, we're introduced to the first king of Israel in chapter 9, who is Saul, and he too, just like Samuel, he passes away by the end of uh, the book. And then, in the midst of this book, we're introduced to a young man named David. And David carries us through, halfway through, we, he kind of sneaks in there a little bit in 1 Samuel, and then all through 2 Samuel, and in 1 Kings, he then passes away, hanging the uh, reins off to Solomon, his son. But in this chapter of 1 Samuel, I just want to remind us that as we read the Word of God, and particularly some of the things that we're going to hit in this first chapter, God inspired these words. He breathed out the Word of God. And a lot of it, in this case, a lot of it is history of men and individuals, nations, and groups. And just because God uses these men, nations, it doesn't mean he is condemning or condoning everything that is written in the Bible. 
It is written for our learning to learn who he is, to draw us closer to Christ, and then we can receive the blessings or even the blunders that others have learned. And why do I say that? I didn't really grow up in a Christian home. It was a very moral home. And when I started opening the Bible, and I started reading it really in college for the first time consistently in my life, I would read things, and my mindset was, well, this is the Bible. I didn't struggle with this as God's word, and I should read it and know it to be authoritative in my life. But my struggle came in is when I read the Bible, I'm like, is that what God is teaching? So everything, if this is God's word and this is Bible, because it's written that way, as we're going to see very early on, the first or the second verse, it's like, does God support this? I mean, I'm, after all, I mean, I was just a brand new believer. I hadn't read much of the Bible. I thought, is this really true? Everything. I was like, wow, the Bible talks about different things with marriage and all these wives and killing and drinking and all this stuff. I was like, man, what is going on here? But because it was God's word, one thing that we have to remember is God is recording history so we could learn about who he is, lead us to Christ, and then how, because we're sinners, how we can get to know Christ and to be like him. It's not perfect people in, in the Bible. Nor are we perfect people gathering here because we want to enjoy our perfection one with another and brag, brag on one another. Church is more of a spiritual hospital where we come to draw closer to Christ, recognize our dependence upon him. So when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 1, there are some things that take place that... God is not supporting, but he's just sharing what happened. But yet God can use the sins and the mistakes of man to glorify himself. It's just amazing. It truly is. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 1. In verses 1 through 8, we're going to look at Hannah's hectic house. I alliterated it for you, Pastor. I alliterated it. And it was done before you preached this morning. Hannah's hectic house. I am so glad, though, when we look at this, when you realize... You know, people are sinners and they make mistakes in the Bible, and I can learn from that, and I don't have to do that same thing. So here we go. We're just going to jump right into it, uh, verses 1 through 8. But I'm going to pick it up in uh, verse 2 just to get started. And he had two wives. What? And the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So we see that he had two wives. This is, I'm already seeing verse 2. He had two wives. So we can look at this verse and say, okay, so God wants men to have two wives. Well, if you keep reading here, you're going to see why that is not a good idea. And on a very practical side, after being married for approaching 20 years, what man in his right mind would want, and I have a wonderful wife, it's nothing that, just, I don't want to, but two wives? And when you read through this, that is crazy. I mean, Whose husband is she? I mean, who does he belong to? There's, what loyalty do you have? And we're going to see this play out. So just saying, God, God is not like supporting. All right, he had two wives. Let's just keep reading and we'll see how it unfolds. All right. So he had two wives and we read through the two. There's two different things with these wives here. We know we're introduced to Hannah and we're introduced to Penina. Hannah had no children. Penina had several. So let's look at verse uh, three here. And this man went up out of the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord, hosts in Shiloh. It was a temporary uh, place, uh, a capital there where they can meet and gather and worship. And two sons, Eli, uh, two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time that Elkanah offered, 
he gave Penina his wife and to all her sons and to her daughters portions. But look at this. This is what I mean with your loyalty. How do you have more than one life? Just, just practical day to day. Honey, I'm eating your dinner tonight. Well, what about her dinner? Is mine not good enough? You love him more than you love me. You love my kids and favoritism. How do we see this today? Sometimes we see this in broken homes that have been remarried. I, both my parents were divorced and remarried. And you have siblings and half and step and all kinds of things. It gets complicated. When you're living at home, it's like, oh, you're just saying that because that's your daughter. And it's like, it really is your daughter. And, and, but I'm his son. And there's, there's, there's friction there. And it can be challenging. I've lived through that. It is very, very challenging to work through. So we're going to look at this house and the house that Hannah was in and see what the Lord does. So here in verse 5, it says, But unto Hannah, one individual, he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. That's what, So he gives to Penina, and here's Penina, here's you, and here's for all your sons, and here's all your daughters. He gives them the portion so they can go do their thing. But to Hannah, he's like, this is yours. Boom. And I'm like, well, but what about me? I mean, I got my little portion, but she got a worthy, hearty portion. It's like, you know, you guys all get your, you know, little rice and beans and chicken necks, but she gets the full rack of ribs, top sirloin, you know, all the fixings with it, baked potato with all the good stuff on it. I mean, you're sitting at the same table and you're going, what in the world is that? I mean, how would you like to be Penina? And I'm thinking, how would you like to be Hannah? I would almost be embarrassed. I mean, to, to receive all this in front of other people when they, they're not getting what you did? I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I would, I would almost be embarrassed if I were her. How do you handle that? I'm the favored one. And it's interesting this comes up because this is not the first time we see this. But let's look at verse six first. Oh, well, verse five, let's finish verse five. But, but unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb, and her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut her womb. So here's how the retaliation went. Oh yeah, you have the love of the husband, but I have all children. Nah, 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 nah. I mean, can you see this? Well, you can't have any children. You're not a very good wife. But she has the love of the husband. And she's going, I just want kids. And she's saying, I just want the love of the husband. You see, practically, I mean, I don't even, <laughs> to have more than one wife, I don't know how you would do that. They didn't, really. That doesn't work. And when Christ mentions this, he takes it back to the beginning. One man for one woman for one life, for the sake of brevity there. And God knows what he's doing. So you have all these issues. And so you have one with no children, but the love of her husband. And what does she desire? Children. You have one that has children, has several of them, of both genders. And what does she want? She just wants the love and affection from her husband. Neither one of them are satisfied. They're both complaining. They're both upset at each other. And somehow he's the monkey in the middle. Or the husband in the middle. However you want to look at it. Very, very challenging. All of us need to be more content. So Penina, let's look at verse 6 again. No, her adversary also provoked. So who is? Who is this adversary of Hannah's? Who is it? Is it the husband? Is it the children? Well, well no. In verse 6 it says, and her adversary also provoked her sore. Who would this be? To make her fret. 
It has to be Penina. Penina is provoking and prodding. And we've seen that, does he do this worthy portion every year before they go to the sacrifice? I'm not sure. Is it possible? It's possible. But either way, give you your portion. Here's your little bit. Here's your little bit. Here's your little bit. Here's your worthy portion. Boom. And then, so what does Penina do? She's, Penina is the provoker. She's prodding at her. She's causing her to worry, trying to make her feel jealous. You can't have kids. I've got all these kids and you've got none. And that hurts a woman who desires to have children. And they're supposed to live in the same house. Just provoking her to no end. And probably year after year, this is reminded, as if every day and every week wasn't enough. I mean, can you imagine Penina? How could she provoke her? I was just thinking about this the other day. How could she provoke her? You know, with all those kids? I can imagine, I don't know, this is not really in the text, but I can imagine all her kids probably had awesome birthdays. All of them. Every year. I mean, how many does she have? Several. I mean, Hannah has to endure every birthday. Oh, my son's having a birthday. He is now eight. (laughs) This is his eighth birthday. She's like, yeah, you don't have to remind me. You know what next month is? It's my daughter. She's seven. I know. I know your kids' ages. Hannah, unfortunately, probably had all their birthdays memorized and and had it drilled in her, just being provoked and prodded of what she doesn't have with something she desired to have. But that was Penina's way of getting her. Don't you just love these marriages with multiple wives? What a great time it must have been in this house. What's interesting here is you don't see him saying much. I mean, just because you can afford two wives doesn't mean you should have them. I mean, that's kind of culturally kind of how it was here. If you can have, you know, if you've got the money, you can support the wife. Why not? Keep in mind, this is coming right out of the judges, and every man that's doing that is right in his own eyes, so hey, go for it. But it's causing strife and frustration. Unfortunately, when we look at this, this is not the first time we see this. There's places where this, to me, it's just a reminder, we need to be content. You don't have kids, so what do you want, kids? You have the love of your husband, but you want what you don't have, which is the kids. So now you have the kids, but what do you want? You want the love of your husband. We always find and desire what we don't have. We covet. We're not content. We see this in Philippians 4. We see this in 1 Timothy 2.6. We see it in Hebrews 13.5. We just need to be content with where we are at. And unfortunately, we see this strife amongst ladies a couple times in Scripture. I'm just going to go to one that's probably popular. And this is with sisters. In Genesis 29, in verse 17, Leah was tender-eyed. But Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. Well, this is Jacob and his wives. And when it says Leah was tender-eyed, she was either had a weak vision. I've read that she could even been cross-eyed or different. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what it was, but something obviously with her eyes. And it probably caused her maybe not to be as attractive or maybe she was weaker because she had poor vision. Whatever it was. But her sister was very beautiful. And that's the one who Jacob worked for for seven years. And the supplanter was supplanted, okay? But so thou you have, then he ends up marrying two wives. And you look at Genesis, look, look what happened. This is a little more practical as far as looking into this too to, with the sisters and how bad this can be within a house that isn't doing things God's way. In Genesis 29, later in that chapter, verse 30, he says he went in also unto Rachel and he loved also Rachel more than Leah. That's just not good. And served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated 
and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Same thing, two wives, one has children, but she's basically not loved. The other one is loved, but has no children. Almost the same thing. The only difference is these are sisters. And I imagine the provoking was even worse. Just a guess. I'm guessing sisters were a little more at it than the other ladies in 1 Samuel. So she was barren. Verse 32, And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Surely the Lord hath looked on my affliction. And now, therefore, my husband will love me. She's hoping to have children just by saying, well, if I have children, something that a man desires to have, then he will love me because I can provide him children. She's depending on children to try and get love from her husband. Sad. Verse 33, and she conceived again and bare a son and said, because the Lord hath heard that I was hated. She's married to a man that feels like I'm just hated. I can't imagine that. He just married me because he had to. Why? And almost the bitterness that she would have. Why did my father make me marry this guy? He didn't want to marry me to begin with. And she names her child of the sort of because the Lord hath heard that I was hated. He hath therefore given me this son also and called his name Simeon. In Genesis 30, the next chapter in verse 2, it says, And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and said, Am I in God's stead, who hath withheld from the fruit of thy womb? It's like, am I God? Am I, am, I, am I withholding children from you? So what is this telling us? There is strife in the home. I love you. I'm doing everything I can. It's not my fault. But Rachel said, with great wrestlings. That's a good sport. With great wrestlings. Have I wrestled with my sister? I, this is the first mention of wrestling in the Bible. It is. I've looked it up. And you would have thought it would be guys wrestling around. It's the sisters. One of the first mentions of wrestling in the Bible, and it's sisters wrestling one another. When you picture wrestling, it's not like, you know, ping pong, tennis, golf. I mean, this is a man's sport. It is one-on-one, intense, close in proximity. You are doing something to someone else that they don't want done to them. And you're going to try and make them do that. In the midst of a match, you're trying to deceive, twist, contort, force, overpower, outsmart, and then shake their hand at the end and watch your hand get raised. <laughs> Wonderful. But when you're watching his hand get, ra- get raised, it's rough. <laughs> so ladies, wrestling in the Bible, who would have thought? But it's giving us a better picture of the strife and the challenge in the home when we do things our way and not God's. So she's wrestling with her sister, and I've prevailed and called his name Naphtali. One more verse in Genesis 30, 22. And God remembered Rachel, and God hearkened to her and opened up her womb. Why did I say this? God eventually, and in his timing, he allowed her to have a child. And amazing. Now I want to point this out really quick before we go to our next point. So in verses 1 through 8, we're looking at Hannah's hectic house. But did you catch this at the end of verse 5, at the end of verse 6? Look at this. They both end with the same exact phrase. Look at it. But the Lord hath shut up her womb. This was of the Lord's doing. This is what makes it really difficult. Why does God do what he do, does? I don't think it's necessarily our job to figure out the ins and outs of why God does what he does. But what I can tell you is this. God wants us to trust him, to draw close to him, 
And sometimes, I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. To trust in the Lord with all thy heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Why did God wait so long for Rachel to have children? I'm not sure. But it could be a testing. It could be for to really enjoy uh, the son that she had. It could just be sometimes God wants us to get in a situation that seems impossible. And that we know by the time the blessing comes it had to have just purely been of God. There's no other option. Maybe that's why God does it with his timing and his way. Shaping the individual to be more like himself. Helping them to adore. Help to encourage us today as we read this scripture. I'm not sure. But what I do know is we need to trust in God through the good times, through the bad times, through the times that we're not sure what it is. So the Lord shut up her womb. So Hannah's hectic house. Not exactly your picture perfect uh, you know, house going on here. Now in verses 9 through 18, we're going to let Hannah praise in the Lord's house. This is really, I find, incredible. So in verse 8, I'll at least read uh, verse, uh, well, I'll read 7, 8 into 9. And as he did year by year, and when he went up into the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. This is one of those, if you ask later how she's doing, anytime she says, fine, warning. Think about it. <laughs> When she says she's fine, I don't know what it is. It's a universal thing among women. When they say she's fine, something is wrong. And you better do your homework to figure it out. Don't, don't walk out and don't, when, <laughs> yeah. If you ask a guy and he says, I'm okay, you know what that usually means? He's okay. You ask a girl, is she fine? That means warning, do your homework, start praying, start thinking. She's not fine. So here's what happens. So she's, not, she's weeping and not eating. So Elkanah comes to her husband. She said, oh, I'm fine. You know, you're not eating. Oh, I'm fine. Hannah, why weepest thou? So he's, he's asking, what's going on here? Why, why eatest thou not? Why are you not eating? What's going on? Why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better than ten sons? Do not I always give you a worthy portion more than what all of them combined? You know that I love you. I make it obvious with what I give you. But he is giving what she cannot, what she does not truly desire. She wants a child. She's tired of this other wife provoking her, fretting her, and getting after her. He just, she can't stand it. So then Hannah rose up, verse 9, rose up, and finally she ate. And had drank, and then Eli sat upon the seat of the post of the temple of the Lord, verse 10. And she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. She is absolutely weeping herself weary in prayer. This is one of those times where, and when you read through this, she's weeping and she's praying. And she gets to the point in verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me. Do you ever feel like you're at the place where you've been praying or designed something so long? It's like, God, do you remember who I am? And for whatever reason, God in his timing is like, yes, I don't forget. But you need to trust in me for my timing. When is God's timing exactly right? I'm not sure. But here, he doesn't forget. He knew Hannah was. I mean, he's seeing everything. He knows everything. 
He knows what Penina has been doing, poking and prodding and just driving her crazy. He knows that. But he has a bigger picture in mind. What we need to be is trusting in him and get our knees and ask God, would you show yourself real through this challenge? Sometimes we ask God to take things away. That may not be God's plan. Maybe it's you need to endure. But God, I've gone to you three times, says Paul. And what does God say? My grace is sufficient. When we pray, we do need to pray in faith. But it's not like, God, you, I'm praying in faith, so you need to give this to me. No, we need to pray believing that it would happen. But knowing that God may have a different time than what we do. I don't think Hannah is sitting there going, I want to wait longer so I can really see God work. I think year after year, she, she's at the point where I'm done. And she is wailing before God and she is crying out. And it gets to the point where she's saying, remember me. And don't forget thine handmaid, middle of verse 11. But will thou give thine handmaid what? I, I, I want a, another wife that's married to my husband to be kind to me. I'm tired of all the, her birthdays. <laughs> no. She's just saying, but will thou give thy handmaid a child? And I love this next phrase. Look what she's doing. It could have been out of desperation. I'm sure it was genuine. Why is she now wanting a child? I think maybe she's getting a grasp of the bigger picture, which we all really ought to have. I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. So she's asking specifically for a man-child. Then she's like, if you do this, so be careful. If you vow vow to God, he always keeps his end of the deal. Then will I give unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Here's what he's saying. She's praying. She's weeping. She's crying. Begging God out of desperation. Genuine faith in God. I just really want a son. And if you provide me a son, I will give him back to you. I will raise him for you. Here's a question. If you have children, what is one of the purposes of raising that child? Is it to just comfort and be a blessing to you? Is it so you can wake up late nights and have blowouts on your way to church? Is it to have you know, activities and running this way and that way and you're the soccer mom and you gotta, well no, we can only do one sport because you know, we got other kids too. And We are training our children in the way that they should go. I think Hannah has started to understand that. Would she have done this? Has she got a son right away? It's tough to say, but here she's realizing, you know what? God, I am so desperate. If you provide me a son, I'm going to give him right back to you. I will wholly dedicate him to you. That's a good thought. When you have children, and if you and I, within this church, don't have children for the purpose of serving God and loving him, what is the purpose of having a child then? So mine could be the best athlete. So mine, I could wear the A plus, you know, straight honor roll on the back of my car and a bumper sticker. My kid can beat up your kid. Well, what is the, what is the bragging rights? I'm going to make him better than I ever was, and I'm going to make sure he is so I can laugh in your face. I've seen parents at wrestling matches. I have, I have seen fights over their kids wrestling. They're like 10, and the dads are out in fighting in the parking lot. I've seen it. I'm like, whoa. I've had to ref soccer games. It's not so much the teammates, the, the, the teams that you've issued. It's the parents. 
You blind ref? Well, probably. I wear black and white because that's what I see, okay? You know, I call it how I see it. Apparently it wasn't very good. But what is the point of having children? At least Hannah got it. After all these years and all that poking and providing, providing by Provina, she got it. Hey, listen, I'm going to raise them for you. What a great thing to ask. And she vows a vow. And there's a, there's a passage in Judges. We're familiar with Samson. It's a Nazarite vow. This isn't just, I'm going to have a man child and I'm giving to you. She is going like all out with the Nazarite vow. We see this with Samson. We see it described in Numbers uh, 6. And it goes through that they couldn't drink anything of the vine. And the reason where she says at the end of verse 11, it says, and there shall no razor come upon his head. That's saying, not a Nazarene, the Nazarite vow. Okay, they couldn't cut their hair. This is why when Samson was a Nazarite, when he cut his hair, that's where his strength was. It's obeying God according to his vow. Some were for a time, some were for a life. Some were called from the womb. We see a couple of examples of this in scripture, but it's found in Numbers chapter six. We're not gonna read through it, but one, uh, verses one through eight. And really, several times it says to be consecrated unto God. And in verse 8, it says, All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. It's to be separated to God. So what is Hannah, in her desperation, in her desire to have a son, she wants this son to be separated for God's service. That's what she's saying. To take this vow, to be used of God, to separate himself as much from the world and unto God as possible. Now here's the challenge that comes in. Oh, we can vow a vow and we can be earnest and genuine and pray with all of our heart and all of our faith. And God can answer that prayer. The challenge is God can hold his end of the bargain. So she has this man child. Will she really do what she said? Because you know what tends to happen? This is what I love how Hannah ends here. We can get our answer to prayer, something we've been praying for for years, and we can praise God for it. But as the days and years go by, as, and we read this, she weans him, she keeps him back till he's weaned, gets old enough to handle life a little bit more on his own. But wouldn't it be tempting to say, this is my son? I've now been nursing him for this time. I decide I want to keep him for myself. That's entirely possible. Sometimes that's how we want to treat our children. I'm raising them for me because that's, that's my kid. It's my daughter. It's my son. I have to remind myself as a parent all the time, God has given me these children to train them to serve him. If they want to be a missionary in Africa, Ghana even, well, let them do it. And as a youth pastor, the insight I've seen with parents, sadly, my observation has been with more than I care to think about, it is the parents that often hold their kids back from serving God. Sadly enough, it's the parents. They don't want their kids to, they don't want to go too far. You, you got to have a, a job that provides, you want to be a missionary where? You want to serve God. Why? Well, isn't that why you've been taking them to church? So they can know God and love him and serve him? You should feel privileged that your child would want to serve God with their entire life. Hannah got it. And she followed through with it. Praise God for that. What a wonderful thing Hannah did. And she takes him. And if we look at this, Hannah's pr- uh, Hannah is remembered by the Lord. We're going to skip all the way to verse 19 here. So she has the son. She weans him. She's going to give him back. And verse 19, and they rose in the morning early and they worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to the house of Ramah and Elkanah's wife and the Lord remembered her. 
He remembered. It's not like he ever forgot, but he answered the prayer. She's seeing that she's so far in her heart is to stick with separating this child with the Nazarite, which means that from even her diet in the womb. While she is pregnant, she has to abide by that same standard of the vow. Um, life is in the womb. Whether it's first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, or shortly thereafter, it's a life upon conception, and little things like this are little hints at that. She had to even change her own diet. Then we continue down and look at verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her. And now she's taking, I mean, she always got a worthy portion, but she's got three bullocks and one ephod of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him into the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slew the bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as the soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. What a great moment this would be. This is like, I am fulfilling my promise. What is she talking about? We kind of skipped over it, but she was so weary and tired of praying out loud that it got to the point where she's just praying and it's like she had no more tears to weep. And she's not praying to be heard, but her lips were still moving. Eli thought that she was drinking, which was an uncommon practice even in the temple that time because everyone's doing that which is right in their own eyes. And you've got drinking and prostitution, all kinds of things going on, uh, in God's house, if you will. Not exactly the greatest place to be. So for Eli to say, oh yeah, she's been drinking. And she's like, no, nor my daughter of Belial. And now, after the pregnancy and the delivery and the weaning, she brings this child back to Eli and said, do you remember me? I'm the woman that you thought was drunk. And I said that I would like to have a man son. And he blessed her and said, you know what? You do seem sincere. You're clearly not drinking. You may be weary and tired from praying and weeping so much. She said, I hope the Lord just gives you what you asked for, essentially. And now he comes back and she is presenting this as, you are the priest, I want you to raise my son. I am giving him to the Lord to his service. Look at this. That's what he did in verse 26. For this child I prayed, verse 27, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked for of him. Therefore have I lent him to the Lord as long as he liveth and he shall be lent unto the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. This was the birth of Samuel. A long-awaited, desperately prayed for, after poking and prodding from Penina, Hannah receives Samuel of the Lord and she takes that child and gives it back to him. Would we do the same? Would we be that fervent in prayer? Would we be that passionate in prayer? Even to the point of having a God, I want to have children to serve you. I want grandchildren that want to serve you. If you don't have children, pray for the, church, or the children in this church that they would go forth and serve God. And that we can years later say, these are my children. Do you remember? Yeah, and you pray for them. If we're not praying for the next generation, the world certainly isn't. And the world's not going to like them. In fact, the world often is going to hate our kids because they want to serve God. Because they don't even like you. They don't like our Savior. Even if you're playing tennis with them verbally. Would we do our best to be passionate in prayer and desire to have children that serve God? And all this would be done to bring honor and glory and praise to our Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we desire to serve. Father, we thank you so much for this evening and for this day.
and just looking at some highlights here of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel and how you used this woman. Yes, she endured much challenge and provoke and fretting and tears and crying and dealing with a hectic house. But Lord, you used all that maybe to just bring her to the point where she was on her knees recognizing that if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. Father, would we learn this lesson? We ought always to raise kids for you. The next generation, this current generation is going to tend upon the one behind us. Father, would we do our best to train them in your ways, that we would not lean on our own understanding, that in all our ways we would acknowledge you and follow you. Would we be passionate in prayer, desiring to have a life of service to you, despite our backgrounds and challenges, and yet we would have kids that we could raise to serve our Savior, Jesus Christ, abhorring all of our sin and adoring only him. We thank you and we praise you for all this. To the precious and glorious name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Pastor. It's a great passage of Scripture. It reminds us of a lot of wonderful truths. And I love the illustration that, <clears throat> that the psalmist uses. He calls children arrows. Arrows are designed to be shot. <laughs> and they land where they're pointed. So remember that. Let's go ahead and turn in our hymn books to hymn 96. O God, our help in ages past. We'll sing, let's just sing the first and the last verses of this uh, song together. Psalm 90, uh, hymn 96, O God, our help in ages past. Stand together, please. For his glory and to pray especially for our young kids. We have so many kids in this church and they are at such a formative season of life. And so let us really, really pray uh, for our families as they're shaping those kids. And those who are not necessarily raising those kids, but you're influencing them. You're teaching their Sunday school classes, uh, working with them and truth trackers. Uh, uplift them in prayer. Okay. Charlie, could you please come and close us in prayer tonight? And uh, then we'll be dismissed. Together this evening, thank you for your love and your grace and uh, the provision you provide for us. And uh, just thank you for your mind this evening and just uh, starting to, to look into Samuel's life and the, um, the desire of Hannah and um, the, the blessing you gave on her. Just um, pray you be with us uh, throughout this week. Help us to honor and glorify you. Help us to be the witness to you. Help us to um, be bold and just uh, 
always be looking to, um, to find ways where, where we can share your gospel. And pray in Jesus' name, amen.